0: Once again, for the reading of Scripture in Exodus chapter 3, and in Exodus 3, we're going to read verses 1 through 15. Let us hear now the Word of God. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. This is the very word of God. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let us now go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, uh, as we come to your word this evening, uh, we ask that your Spirit would give us ears to hear and give us spiritual understanding that we might see the importance of this word for us, uh, that we might know who you are uh, as we encounter you in the word here tonight. And we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, as we return to Exodus this evening, brothers and sisters, we come to one of the most preeminent chapters in all of Scripture. No doubt all of God's Word is inspired, it's profitable for us, it's all important, but I do believe there are certain passages that reveal with a special clarity and a special importance who our God is. And I believe that Exodus 3 is one of those passages It reveals so much about who God is. Uh, that we might know Him. You remember that our Lord Jesus said that to know God, the one true God, is eternal life. In John 17, the Lord says, "...this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent." So this is what our eternal life consists in, brothers and sisters, is to know our God and to grow in knowing him, and then into all eternity, knowing our God more and more and more. And yet our knowledge in this life is imperfect, it's impartial. Uh, We see through a glass darkly, but we do see truly uh, what he has revealed of himself in the word of God. And so that is my aim tonight is in this passage, as Moses confronted the Lord and was visited by the Lord, that we would know who our God is. We would behold the glory of God in his revelation here in Exodus chapter 3. Another reason that Exodus 3 is important is because it is the very first occurrence of the word holy in the Bible. I searched again because I was curious about this, like, is the word holy ever appear in the book of Genesis as, as the word holy? And I, I could not find it. Of course, the concept of holiness is there. The holiness of God is evident implicitly throughout the book of Genesis, as many of God's uh, characteristics are. But the very first mention of holiness as a, as a truth, as a concept, is first revealed for us in Exodus 3, and so we learn much about the holiness of God in this passage Another reason this passage is important is because this is what we call a theophany. And <laughs> uh, kids, that's a bigger word. Theophany, it simply means an appearance of God. God appearing in some way. It doesn't mean God's full essence appears as if God in His infinite nature could be revealed to us finite people and we could see Him directly with our eyes. But God reveals Himself in some manifestation that we can have some degree of understanding and some interaction with God. He he condescends down to us in our smallness and reveals something of His bigness, of His greatness. And so for all those reasons, this is a very important passage for us tonight. Now as we look at it, we cannot look at all the details and the time that we have, but I want to give you three headings, three main points about our God that we will see in this passage to help us organize our understanding of it. The first one is that we are going to see the God who is holy, the God who is holy, Secondly, we will see the God who redeems, the God who redeems his people. And then thirdly, we will see the God who is. And that's all I'm going to say, the God who is, because that is indeed what he reveals about himself. So let's look first at the God who is holy. Moses was, at this point, uh, living with... um, His father-in-law, his wife, Zipporah, he was tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, here in the wilderness. He had probably wandered some way from Midian, and he was near Horeb, Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, the place where eventually the Ten Commandments would be revealed. And according to Acts chapter 7, about 40 years have passed, four decades Four decades away from his people in Egypt, four decades away from his family, uh, living in exile, though of course he had chosen to choose the people of God over the Egyptians in terms of his identity. And now Moses is no longer this great prince in the Egyptian courts, he's a shepherd, how fitting that Moses would take upon himself the job that the Egyptians despised. You remember what we learn at the end of Genesis: uh, the Egyptians they didn't want to have anything to do with shepherds. They said, "You got to live in Goshen. We don't we don't spend time with shepherds. It's just it's dirty." Uh, and so Moses is a shepherd now. He's adopting the identity of God's people. It's also fitting that Moses is a shepherd because he is training. For his job, which is to shepherd the people of God out of Egypt in the years to come. And it's not going to be an easy job. And he, he learned something of how difficult it is to shepherd sheep. And it was going to get more difficult in the years that would come. Now, while Moses is doing this, while he's shepherding the flock of Jethro, he, he encounters a sight, a very curious sight in verses 1 through 3. It says, as, "...as he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God... The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. This is not something that you would ordinarily see, right? If you have a bush of any regular size, as we think of bushes, and it's on fire, And yet the bush does not become consumed. It doesn't just wither and die and the fire goes out for lack of fuel. You think, something's going on here. Something is strange about this. And indeed, that was the way of the Lord revealing himself and getting Moses' attention. And people have long wondered, why is the Lord revealing himself as fire? Why why this bush? Why this burning bush? What, What does this tell us about who God is? Well, there's been many discussions about that. There's been many explanations for it, but we, we must remember that our God reveals himself he, in Deuteronomy four as a consuming fire. Moses speaks of this uh, of the Lord, and he he's actually in this context warning the people of God not to turn to idolatry, lest the Lord in his fiery wrath uh, come out against them in judgment. Uh, Deuteronomy four twenty-three. Through 24, Moses says, Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire and a jealous God. Now, sometimes fire is a picture of the judgment of God, the fiery judgments of God. Quite often we see the Lord speaking of the fire of his judgment. But fire is not merely a picture of judgment. If you look at all the ways in which fire is uh, mentioned in Scripture, we, we also find that fire is sometimes a picture of purity. Fire would sometimes come and it would either destroy in judgment or it would purify. There's passages in the prophets that speak about God purifying his people with fire and they come out clean on the other side. They come out holy on the other side. Fire, though, also, I think, evokes for us a sense of power. Fire is a powerful thing. You look at these forest fires, these wildfires, and what they can do and how uncontrollable they can become. Fire is a very powerful thing. So it's possible that as we look at the burning bush, the revelation of God, of of himself in the burning bush, we are meant to think of all of these things. But also the fact that the bush was not consumed. We're given that detail. The bush was not consumed. What does this mean? It reminds us that our God is unchanging. He is never diminishing in any way. He is enduring always. He never loses any of His power. He never loses any of His purity, any of His holiness. His his being is unchangeable. Now, even though this uh, the purpose of this burning bush, theophany is not fully explained to us, we do know that another connection of this burning bush, the imagery of fire, is connected with holiness, and that's what we see in verses four through five. So, as Moses he turns to look at the bush, the Lord tells him that he is standing on holy ground. Verse four: When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, "Moses." Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. So, amidst all the other pictures that the scriptures give us about fire, we see that also we are to connect the fire with the holiness of God. And this is indeed the first occurrence of the word in the Bible when Moses uh, comes towards the bush and the Lord says, Do not draw near. Take your sandal off sandals off your feet. And since this is the first occurrence of the word in in the scriptures, I think this draws our attention to the importance of this passage that we might understand something of holiness. The very first thing that God says about holy ground, where he has revealed himself, is this: do not draw near. So, if if there's anything that we would gather about the holiness of God, one of the first data points that God has given us here is don't draw near. Why is that? Moses is not holy, like God is holy. He's told to take off his sandals. Because in treading upon holy ground where the holy God has manifested himself, to walk as a sinful person with one's dirty sandals upon the holy ground where God has revealed himself is to potentially contaminate something that ought not to be and indeed cannot be contaminated. And and knowing that our God is a holy God is one of the most important things that we must understand about who God is. If someone asks you, uh, perhaps an unbeliever or somebody unfamiliar with the faith, uh, they say, what do you believe about God? What do you say? I mean, that's such an open-ended question. There's so many things you could say. It's a great opportunity. You think, well, great, I'll I'll tell you about this God that I believe in and worship. And, And there's many things you should say in response to that question. But I would say that you need to tell that person that God is a holy God. The holiness of God needs to be communicated in some way or another, whether with the explicit word or implicitly as we talk about his, his judgment and sin and the wrath of God and the provision of Christ upon the cross and in His death and resurrection. All of this, of course, only makes sense if we know the holiness of God. Now, as we speak about the holiness of God, what do we mean by this word? What is the word holy revealed to us about who God is. Well, I think the, the most common uh, thing that comes to our mind as we think about holiness is the moral purity of God, His total sinlessness. There is no taint of impurity in our God. And indeed, the scriptures say, as, as 1 John 1 says, that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. That's one of the visual ways that the scriptures speak about His moral purity. But beyond that, we, we must also remember that holiness involves a otherness, a, a separation between things. We, we see this quite clearly in the tabernacle system, which is very helpful in learning about holiness. What do we learn about holiness through the tabernacle system and the temple? We, we learn that there's separation. There's all these barriers and there's these separations and there's these preparations one must make to be set apart It is to set something apart, for something to be unique in a category of its own. And indeed, it includes moral purity. One thing we can say then about God's holiness is this. To say God is holy is to say he is not like us. He is other than us. He is transcendent above us. This is expressed very well in the prayer of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2. She, she speaks about the holiness of God in her prayer as she's giving thanks to the Lord for the birth of Samuel, and she connects holiness with his uniqueness. First Samuel 2 verse 2, Hannah prays, "'No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God.'" She says it in three different ways. She says there's none like God. He is holy in a way that no one and nothing else is holy. So Moses was learning here about God's holiness that day. He learned that he could not just draw as close as he wanted. He couldn't just waltz up to the bush and touch it and this is a very casual encounter. No, this is a holy place because a holy God has revealed himself to Moses and he cannot draw near. Later uh, on Mount Horeb, we would see once again the holiness of God revealed as he descended upon the mountain, as he revealed the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words to his people. And that day was so frightening for the people. You remember what it was like in Exodus 19. Smoke and fire descended upon the mountain, thunderings. The people were told that they could not ascend the mountain lest they die. God's separation from us, His impeccable moral purity and His holiness means that we who are sinful creatures, we cannot simply, casually walk right into His presence. Whenever people in the Bible confront the holiness of God and they realize the holiness of God, what do they do? They tremble. They fall to their knees like Peter did. Isaiah, who saw the holiness of God, what did he say? He says, I am undone. My eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. The Apostle Peter, when he realized the holiness of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, you remember when Jesus had told Peter, he says, hey, throw the net on the other side of the, uh, the boat, and you're going to catch some things. And Peter says, kind of blows it off, says, oh, well, we've done that all night, but if you say so, we'll try, and... And then he does it and he pulls in so many fish that the net is breaking and he falls to his knees because he realizes that he's in the presence of the Holy One, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And he says, depart from me for I am a sinful man. He could not be in Jesus' presence unless Jesus invited him into his presence any longer because he realized the utter distance between him and Jesus as it, as it related to holiness And so, brothers and sisters, we need to know that we serve, we worship a holy God. And when we come to realize that God is the Holy One, then we will know why we need Jesus Christ and why there is no hope apart from Him. If we have a wrong conception of holiness and we see the gap between us and God as a rather minimal degree of separation something quite easily bridged by us, as many religions do. You know that there's many religions out there, they'll say, well, there's just a certain number of rituals, a certain number of sacrifices and good deeds. You might make it. Islam you know, teaches that. You might, you might make it. Observe the five pillars carefully. Uh, do your best. You might make it. If, if Allah has decreed that it is so, do your best. False religions tend to diminish the holiness of God by teaching that it is possible for us to make our way back to God through our own efforts of faithfulness to Him, through our own efforts of external cleanliness, perhaps, in order to get back to God. If we were to use the illustration of climbing a mountain with God at the top, false religions, they make it like a small hill. It's just a little berm. You just got to work your way up, just little steps, and you'll be at the top, and you'll be there. But the Bible teaches that there is an unbridgeable chasm between us and a holy God. It's unbridgeable by us. But it is bridgeable by the one mediator, Jesus Christ, whom God has given to us. And he has made a way for us to be redeemed and to be reconciled to him and to come into the presence of the holy and then to be made holy ourselves. What an amazing thing. So Moses met the holy God that day. But he also met a God who is committed to the redemption of his people. And that brings us to the second point, the God who redeems. After Moses took off his sandals, the Lord revealed himself to Moses and he identifies himself. He says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God is one who has made promises to his people. He mentions Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because those men... Those patriarchs had received the promises of God. Abraham had been told that in your seed all the nations will be blessed. Well, how could that happen when they're languishing in Egypt in slavery? How are the nations going to be blessed with that happening? And Isaac and Jacob, these promises had been reconfirmed to them. These were promises made to the people of God. And that's why the Lord reveals himself as the God who keeps his promises to his people. But isn't it an amazing thing that God is willing to identify himself with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? I mean, if you're the holy God, totally morally pure, totally other than any created thing, do you really want to reveal yourself as the God of those guys? The God of lying Abraham. The God of partiality showing Isaac. The God of Jacob the cheat. That's what they were by, by nature. These were not glorious men. These were not uh, very good men at times, though yes, they were men of faith. We know that. Uh, they were not perfect men. But this reminds us that God is so committed to the redemption of his people and he's so committed to the promises he's made to his people that he will actually identify himself as the God of those people. As Hebrews eleven sixteen says of the Hall of Faith that says God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. What love to see that God is not ashamed to be associated with us because he, he, because he has committed to redeem us. He loves us. He loves his people. So this is what the Lord now reveals to Moses. After 400 years, he says, I am going to act. I'm going to fulfill my promises. I am not going to let my people languish in slavery any longer. Verses 7 through 8, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up From that land to a good and large land to a land flowing with milk and honey. Now this has taken, brothers and sisters, 400 years to occur. And and to us, when our lives are so short, you know, if we live 80, 90 years, we call that a good long life, right? 400 years seems like a really long time, doesn't it? Think of all the questions the Hebrews would have asked as they were in Egypt. Where is God? Where is the fulfillment of his promises? Why are we still here? Generation after generation after generation dying, not seeing the fulfillment of the promises of God. And they think at some point, I'm sure people have these doubts and these struggles to say, God has forgotten us. Did they think that? Perhaps it would not have surprised us if somebody would have said, look, it's been 200 years by now, it's been 100 years even, God has forgotten us. But brothers and sisters, God had not forgotten His people. The Lord says, He says, I have seen and heard and known their sorrows. He he enters into what they're they're going through in the sense that He's very aware of it. He understands what they're going through. He has seen it. He has heard it and he knows what they're going through. And he has heard their prayers. And though the Lord may delay, as it seems to us, yet he never forsakes his people and he never breaks one promise to his people. Now, as we've already learned as we've begun Exodus, we know that Exodus is a paradigm book for understanding God's redemption. If you want to understand salvation in the Bible... Exodus is a great place to go to see what redemption looks like. And there's so much we could say about the nature of redemption, the nature of salvation in Exodus. But I want to just focus right now on one particular aspect of that redemption, which is mentioned in in our passage And that that theme that I want to focus on about redemption is the fact that when God redeems us from slavery to sin and slavery to the fear of death, he delivers us unto service. Unto worship and service of him. And you saw this in verse 12, that the very sign that God had done these things would be that they end up back at Mount Horeb. And what do they do at Mount Horeb? They serve God on that mountain. Verse 12. The Lord says, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, as I looked at that word serve, I thought, well, where else does this appear in Exodus? And I was amazed to find maybe 10 to 12 references of this word. And it's it's a constant drumbeat in the accounts that we have between Pharaoh and Moses. You remember when Moses goes and confronts Pharaoh and he says, you need to let the people of God go. Why? That they may go serve God, that they may go worship God in the wilderness. That was the purpose of this redemption. And yes, part of God's redemption is to bring them to the promised land to bless them with all these amazing spiritual and material blessings. But they were called out of Egypt to worship God. Look at Exodus 7 verse 16 just as one example of this interaction between Pharaoh and between Moses. 7 verse 16. And you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now, you would not hear. So the point of this, brothers and sisters, that we need to grasp tonight is that when we are redeemed, we are redeemed unto service, the service of God. We are not redeemed to live for ourselves, but to live for God and to serve God with our newly granted freedom that he has given us. We are redeemed from serving self, and, and we are made the servants of the Most High God. That is our identity. What, how, how are the saints described so often in uh, the Scriptures? Or how does Paul describe himself? As a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We are put into the service of Almighty God. We are redeemed from the worship of idols to instead worship and serve the true and living God. Another New Testament parallel to this is in First Thessalonians chapter 1. It's a wonderful description of the power of the gospel at work. Uh, If you look at 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9, Paul in that chapter, he's reflecting upon when the word of God came to Thessalonica, it did amazing things. He said the reception of the gospel was so powerful that not only did you Thessalonians get saved through Christ, but the word of God sounded forth into the whole region through you and through your testimony. And what was it that had happened to them? 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9, Paul says, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You see the power of God at work. What does it do to convert and transform the Thessalonians? It It transforms them from idol worshipers in bondage to false gods to become servants of the Lord. And so, brothers and sisters, let us remember that we have been saved for a purpose. We have been saved for the worship and the service of our great God. You exist as a Christian to serve your master and to do his will every single day. We'll see more of that as we progress in Exodus. Thirdly, though, we look at our final theme God reveals himself as the God who is. As Moses received this commission from the Lord, he realizes, well, I have to tell the Hebrews something about the God who appeared to me. How am I going to identify this God who has spoken to me? And he says, well, what is your name? I need a name. I need some identifying marker to share with the Hebrews so they know who you are. Of course, God has revealed himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That would provide a point of connection for the Hebrews. But what does the Lord say? In verses 13 through 15, Moses asks, If they say to me, what is his name, what shall I say to them? And the Lord says this. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And then the Lord expands upon that. He names himself as the Lord God of your fathers. That is Yahweh. That is his his personal covenant name revealed to his people. Yahweh, the God of your fathers. But he says this, I am who I am. This has always been so curious because as you open your Bible to Exodus 3 and you see these all caps... And you think, that is very strange grammar. I am has sent me to you. It doesn't make good sense. It seems like in English even. and It seems strange. It seems curious why the Lord reveals himself in this way. Why would God name himself as a verb effectively? God is telling us something very important about himself. He is telling us that he is the all sufficient and self existent God who has existed from all eternity and will exist into all eternity and will never change. He is not simply the God who was or the God who will be, though that's true in the sense of our framework of time. He's always going to be. But God simply is. We have so much of God's glorious attributes all wrapped up in this phrase. I am who I am. He he is the God who exists. This is very hard for us to understand, isn't it? Because all of us came into existence at some point or another. And everything else in this universe that we know has a derived existence. It came from something else. If you look out at a tree outside, even if it's a really old tree, at some point a seed fell and that's where the tree came from. And the seed had to come from another tree, which came from another tree, and on the sequence goes, right? And kids will often naturally ask the question, they'll say things to their parents, they'll say, where did God come from? Or who made God? And it's an understandable question why we would ask, Who made God? Because in our frame of reference, everything is made by something or someone. Everything comes from something else. We ask these questions because we are derived and dependent creatures ourselves. And God is telling us, He is saying, I am. I simply am. I exist. I am the self existent one that never changes. Now that's very powerful in light of facing the great Egyptian pharaoh who has all this great power it seems and his great armies to punish the Hebrews to know that the God who simply exists, the God who self-exists has no need of anything outside of himself can come and can redeem his people. It is very good news brothers and sisters that our God is Our God is not dependent on anyone or anything. What a weak God we would have if that God needed to be propped up and reinforced and needed help from other people. Not much of a God that can help you or redeem you if it's not a God who simply is. And yet this can make people uncomfortable too. A.W. Tozer in The Knowledge of the Holy, he he talked about how some people really are uncomfortable with this whole concept of God's self-existence. It's unnerving to some people. He says... We tend to be disquieted by the thought of one who does not account to us for his being, who is responsible to no one. You'll find this in conversations with people. They, they don't like the idea of God being able to do whatever he wants. People say, no, he needs to do what I want if I'm going to worship him and believe in him. He's going to do the things that I think are appropriate. And we say, that's, that's simply not the case. The, the God who is does not answer to you or to anyone else. He is the great I am, and he does not have to answer to you for anything. And as we saw in our scripture reading, our Lord Jesus used this very same phrase of himself when confronted by the Jews, and they were pressing him. They said, who are you to be talking about Abraham and all this? You were were just born a few decades ago. Who are you? And he says, before Abraham was, I am. Our Lord is revealing himself as God incarnate, the self-existent God, the same God who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. And so, brothers and sisters, as we have seen our God this evening, we are to be reminded that we serve a holy God. A God that we cannot simply approach on our own terms, but one that we must approach through our mediator, Jesus Christ. We have seen the God who is mighty to save, the God who cares about his people, the God who will act to redeem, and then we've learned that he is the God who is self-existent and therefore certainly has the power to redeem his people. So brothers and sisters, may we exalt this God, may we glorify this God, and serve him all of our days. Let us pray. Almighty God, you are the Holy One. You are the great I am, the one who exists beyond time, beyond all created things, and we humble ourselves before you tonight because you are great and greatly to be praised. Oh Lord, we ask that you would teach us humility as we come to know who you are, and we thank you that through Jesus Christ we are able now to draw near, that we can become your holy people. We can... Be in fellowship and in communion with you because of Jesus Christ. And we are thankful tonight that you have made this way of redemption for us. Lord, help us now to commit our hearts to your service. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.